Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the California condor. With a nearly 10-foot wingspan, the condor is the largest bird in North America, flying at speeds of 50 miles per hour and as high as 15,000 feet in the air. But for more than a century, these birds have been absent from Northern California. Until this year. The success of captive breeding programs has allowed these birds to be reintroduced to the northern wild and will meet the Yurok tribal members, scientists, and government workers who brought them home. Join us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Condors are flying across Northern California skies again after 130 years, thanks to the work of the Yurok tribe and federal and nonprofit agencies. While their numbers have grown slowly and steadily in Central and Southern California, after dwindling to barely more than 20 in the world in the 1980s, reintroduction to the wild in Northern California eluded these magnificent birds until this year. Joining me now to talk about the decades-long effort to return condors to the Redwoods and Yurok Ancestral Territory are Tiana Williams-Clausen, Director of the Yurok Tribe Wildlife Department. Tiana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here. Joe Burnett is also with us, Senior Wildlife Biologist and California Condor Recovery Program Manager at Ventana Wildlife Society. Joe Burnett, really glad to have you as well. Thank you. Honored to be here. So first, Joe, can you remind us what a condor looks like? They're they're pretty fierce when I look at the images. Yeah, you know, I think that's probably one of the more, um, I think when folks look at it, you know, they look like vultures, you know, they don't have feathers on their head and, um, you know, the baldness on the, and the bright red color and, you know, they're feeding on dead things. I think they conjure up, definitely conjure up uh, uh, these images, but 
you know, what we, when you start working with the birds and start um, observing them, there's a beauty that, that is just undeniable, you know, that, that kind of shines through. Um, but yeah, that rough exterior, uh, there's definitely uh, a lot more to the condor than just what meets the eye. Tiana, do you remember the first time you saw or encountered one? Oh, absolutely. Um, it was actually with Joe. Um, we'd gone down to Ventana Wildlife Society to um, both receive some training in condor monitoring and tracking and handling, but also to help with um, construction of one of their facilities. And like Joe said, it's particularly they are gorgeous in motion. I was standing there on the slope and this huge shadow passed in front of me. Of course, it draws the eye right up. And I saw this absolutely beautiful and gorgeous creature flying maybe 15 feet over my head. Wow. And I heard this zing as the wind passed through its feathers. And it was just an incredible experience. What does the condor mean in Yurok tradition to the Yurok? So condors, uh, Preganish in the Yurok language, tie very closely to what we consider to be our foundational reason for being which is as world renewal or fix the earth people, people who are bound to keep the earth in balance. And that means the airs, the waters, the wildlife, our spirits and, and all the spiritual components of the world. Um, it's our job to keep things healthy and well. And our relationship with condor goes all the way back to the beginning of time when before even humans were really the people of the world. And it was the spirits like condor who were helping design how we would move forward in a good way. And so condors contributed to our role as world renewal people, teaching us how to be good people, um, as well as many other lessons. One of them that's actually taught to us is, from condor is he has a very strong and kind-hearted spirit, which is an important part of renewal. Um, and that spirit is much more important than his physical exterior, which some people may uh, may mistake for as his important thing in, in, when they first see him. But no, it's really the spirit that matters. Yeah, we asked listeners to finish the sentence, California condors are, and one of the things that we heard were gentle giants. And I guess it makes sense, Joe, in the sense of they have these these teeth that are capable of, of ripping away flesh, rotting flesh, but they're gentle in the sense that they don't actually hunt or kill, right? Yeah, they're they're obligate scavengers, yeah. And with that, that beak and those strong neck muscles, they can render flesh from you know, carcasses that are left on the landscape. And really, you know, their role is nature's cleanup crew. I mean, they can go out there, say, you know, in Big Sur, I remember in 2006 when they found their first whale carcass, you know, it was a historic moment. That was the first time we'd seen them feeding on whales since Lewis and Clark's time. And uh, so it was this moment. And then you you just saw the relationship, the natural um, relationship they had with, with, the ocean as well and what it provides and they rendered that whale they fed on that whale for four months and wow. uh and it provided for them as a flock at that time and they were a younger flock at that time so it was amazing to see that relationship reconnected you know re you know tiana's kind of hitting on it um yeah these relationships they have not only with you know with that and then they're feeding and then they're nesting with redwoods and um you know which are so prominent up north um also prominent in Big Sur, but yeah, this relationship they have with Redwoods is also pretty incredible. And just the whole environment, but yeah, nature's cleanup crew, boy, you need them. Yeah, what an image. I'm wondering what they sound like. <laughs> what kind of sounds do they make, Joe? You know, they don't have vocal cords, um, but interestingly enough, they make um, kind of a reptilian sound, like what you'd hear from a snake, like a hiss, 
So if another bird is kind of pushing another bird around, the bird getting pushed around will hiss back and strike at the almost snake-like at the uh, at the other condor. And uh, they also make a, a grunting sound. Um, I can't, I'm not that good. I have some, some folks on my crew that are really good at it, but I'm not going to try right now, but <laughs> very well, guttural. So yeah, very primal type sounds. Um, but most of their communication with each other, they're incredibly social. Um, we call them, you know, we joke about them as flying primates. They're, they're so complex and their relation, these long relationships they have with each other. And uh, yeah, so their, their language is mostly nonverbal. You know, they change the coloration of their heads um, you know, and someone asked me, what's the color of a condor head? I said, well, it depends on the mood. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, they're, they're scared. They kind of flush like humans do and get real pale. Um, but when they're happy or in breeding season, they're bright. You'll see purples, pinks, you know, yellows. And of course, they, they do a, a elaborate courtship display. And um, they're just amazing. I mean, I, I just, I just feel uh, really lucky to be working with them as a biologist and I'm continually fascinated by their, not only their intelligence, but just their, the way they communicate, the way they, they interact in these long social bonds. I mean, you just can't help, but um, identify with that, you know? Yeah. Uh, my, my understanding is that our producers, Grace and Susie have procured a condor sound for us to listen to. So let's, let's hear that recording now. Wow, we are listening to California condors and talking about a decades-long effort to return condors to the redwoods and Yurok ancestral territory with Tiana williams Clausen, director of the Yurok Tribe Wildlife Department, and Joe Burnett, a senior wildlife biologist and California condor recovery program manager at Ventana Wildlife Society. And you, our listeners, of course, can join the conversation. Have you ever seen or encountered a condor. What are your questions about condors and the condor reintroduction? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So Tiana, talk a little bit about the condors that were released in Northern California. How many were there? So we were blessed to receive uh, four condors, uh, juvenile condors, about two to three years old from uh, the rearing facilities at the Oregon Zoo and the Boise World Center for Birds of Prey. So we had three males and one female who we successfully released this spring for the first time, uh, meaning for the first time in over 130 years now, yeah. condors are free flying in Yurok skies again. So that was a really incredible time. And what can you tell us about each of them? I understand they have names that are reflective of their their way, their personality. They do. Um, so we consider condors to be, if not equal to humans, then potentially even superior species because of what they teach to us. Um, so we understand that they probably, in our understanding, they probably have their own language. They probably have their own names for themselves. But it's a very traditional indigenous thing that as you come into new milestones in your life, you're provided a new name by the community you integrate with. And so we provided them, I'm calling them nicknames, but um, mm. so our first was Poitwasan. It literally means the one who goes out ahead. He's a leader. And that was uh, given to our bird A3, um, who was the first one out and actually ended up just booking it <laughs> away from the facility and spending two weeks on his own. <laughs> 
The second released was his good bud, Nesquichok, and that means he returns, indicative of the overall return of Condors, but he himself took a much more reserved approach, flying only a little bit away, but then coming back to our facility every night to uh, eat at the proffered carcass we had there to keep them close to home so we could observe them. After that, we released our first female. Uh, her name given was Negem Nichwinka, which means she carries our prayers. And so that actually references one of the traditional roles that Condor plays for us, which is carrying our prayers across the world when we're asking for the world to be in balance. And then the last uh, released was Klaahalet. And that means that either, either we or I finally fly free. And, and that's, of course, a reference to all of our four first of our first cohort actually flying free together. <laughs> and also the fact that poor, poor A1 that was, um, uh, was the last one to go <laughs> and had to wait the longest. So that's our first four birds. Oh, beautiful. So with these four, Joe, where does that put basically the number of condors that are now flying uh, in Southern Central California, I believe in Arizona too, if I, or Nevada, as I understand it. Yeah, we're we're well over 500, and um, yeah, I think Ashley will have the exact numbers for us. But yeah, uh, well over 500. You know, from the 27 that when they brought them all in in 1987, the last free flying condor was caught. Um, we're well over 500, and roughly 300 in the wild between Arizona, Southern California, Central California, and Northern California. Well, uh, and when you say Ashley, you mean Ashley of the U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife, who will be joining us later. First, though, I want to read a couple of comments from our listeners. This listener tweets, condors are absolutely amazing. They almost look prehistoric to me. I'm not going to call them giant buzzards, though. I hope I can see one fly over me one day. Another listener writes, Honestly, condors look terrifying, something like a dinosaur with wings, but this show is making me love them more. You can share your thoughts on, on condors, what comes to mind when you think of the California condor, if it means something special to you. You can email them to forum at kqed.org. You can post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, and you can always give us a call. Our number is 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. More after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me tell you what we're talking about on Monday. We'll be talking with Adrian Hahn, a game developer. But he says watch out for the points badges and leaderboards and things like that that aim to make exercising, learning, or your jobs more fun. While they're all part of our gamified modern life, they're also, according to Han, an insidious form of behavior control. Han joins us to talk about his new book, You've Been Played. Today, we're talking about the California condor, which this year was reintroduced to Northern California by the Yurok Tribe and their partners. And we're talking with Tiana Williams-Clausen, director of the Yurok Tribe Wildlife Department, and Joe Burnett of the Ventana Wildlife Society, a senior wildlife biologist there in their California condor recovery program. And we're talking with you, our listeners. You're telling us if you've ever encountered a condor, what questions you have about them, or what comes to mind when you think of the California condor. And let me go to caller Nicole in San Pablo. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Mina. Thanks for having me. I am just so excited for this conversation. I was uh, leading a youth group uh, trip in Pinnacles this past spring, and we were hiking the loop and came on some hikers who turned around and gave us the hush finger because there was a condor, and if my memory serves me correctly, it was tag number 40, and he was just up there with his wings spread sunning himself, and it was to be close enough to a condor to see the tag number. They're majestic, they're graceful, and then I have to shout out to the volunteers who worked to track them because about three years ago we had spoken with a volunteer um, and he just took an incredible amount of time talking to the young people about the condors and the role they play in the ecosystem. We ran into the same volunteer again this past spring, and he said, oh, yeah, tag number 40, that's a young male. Uh, he's, he's too immature to be mating, so that's why he's hanging out over there. And just so grateful for the education that they provide on the spot to anybody who stops and asks about them. And thank you as well for, for this conversation. It's, oh. it's wonderful. Well, Nicole, I'm so excited for you that you you got to have that experience. Joe, do you know Tag 40, the Condor 40? Yes, I do. Yeah, thank <laughs> you, Nicole. I'm, I'm glad you ran into the volunteers. So one of our close partners is Pinnacles National Park, the National Park Service. Um, they started releasing in Central California to join our effort. Um, we, are, we are located on the coast. They're inland. Uh, they joined the the effort in 2003 and have been just a, such an incredible partner. And Pinnacles itself is such an amazing place, as Nicole described. And this bird she saw, um, I'm guessing it was 840, um, if it's a younger male. Um, and he's since then, he's now coming of age a little bit. He's definitely not breeding age yet, but he's an up and comer. Um, and yeah, again, these birds, you know, they, they have these long lives, you know, they um, they reach, you know, breeding maturity when they hit around six to eight years old and can live as long as 50, 60 years in the wild. So, uh, 
you could come back years from now, Nicole, and still see 840. And by that point, he might be nesting. So you could just literally follow his whole course of his life. Well, Joyce wonders, could you please explain how Condor's appearance is different from vultures? What would you say, Tiana, are the most remarkable differences to what we understand as the everyday vulture in terms of appearance? Well, it's definitely a matter of size on the one hand. (laughs) Um, If you see a turkey vulture next to a condor, you will definitely see the difference with a a wingspan of, like I said, about nine and a half feet versus about six to six and a half feet. That said, if you don't have that opportunity, a good way is looking upwards if you see them flying. Uh, Turkey vultures have kind of this more V-shaped wing formation and they're kind of more tippy. They, They use the wind a little bit differently than the very large condors have a much more even and straight sort of soaring path than the vultures do. Uh, The other easy way when you're looking up at them though particularly is the condors have a white feathering pattern that kind of starts at the leading edge of the wing whereas turkey vultures and other vultures kind of have a more on the trailing edge of the feathers and so that's a clear indication of whether you're looking at a condor or a turkey vulture there. And uh, Pete tweets Great news. Please give us some examples of condor intelligence. You were also talking about this, Joe, in terms of just the intelligence you can see in their eyes. What are some examples that really tell you uh, and reflect condor intelligence? Um, I think I, I, when I speak to it, I speak to like their social intelligence, these uh, bonds they create with other birds, and then just their their knowledge of the landscape is incredible. I mean, you're talking, these birds can travel up to 200, 250 miles in a day. We've had a condor in Big Sur that's been up to Mount Whitney in the Southern Sierras. Um, and she's one of our oldest, actually. That's uh, her, her nickname is Traveler. Um, but yeah, so these, these birds have an amazing memory. Um, if they, they know where to go back and find food, they go, they have these uh, territories, you know, you can imagine navigating the the, the world, the way they see it, um, you have to have, uh, you know, it's probably a different kind of intelligence, but uh, yeah, I think between their social intelligence, their memory, just everything about them um, uh, just shouts, you know, just a really smart bird. Well, let me go to caller Christine in San Jose. Hi, Christine. Hi, thanks for the show. It's fabulous. Thanks. What would you like to share? Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up uh, in San Jose up against the East Foothills, and I had this fear. I learned about condors and how big they were, and I had this fear uh, that a condor would come down and swoop, uh, swoop on me and carry me away. I wasn't afraid of ghosts, vampires, or anything like that, but my fear was being swept up by a giant condor. <laughs> wow. Well, they certainly capture the imagination, but... Uh... But hopefully that the gentle giant that we've been talking about has ended that for you or ended that for you a long time ago. But that said, Joe, I imagine when you are releasing a condor, you have to be extremely careful, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah, condors are gentle giants, but they will protect themselves. You know, condors don't um, have talons like, a, uh, like you typically see with an eagle or a hawk. Their feet are made more for walking. They can obviously grab a perch on a tree really well, but they're, it's, the size is their intimidation factor. They actually can't back it up too much, you know? Um, obviously, if they're backed in a corner, they'll defend themselves, um, but really their, their beak is their 
when we're when we're working with the condors and either whether we're attaching transmitters before we release them or or checking their blood for um, lead, we are typically really careful with the head and the beak. You know, obviously they can render flesh from through really thick hide. So if they get a hold of us, it, it usually ends you know, with them taking our flesh. So we're really careful and, you know, we have a process that we've kind of perfected over the years to, to handle them with the least amount of stress. And obviously the, the handlings are really, really limited because we want to keep the birds as wild as possible. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, condors are, are for the most part, completely harmless. And uh, again, they use that size in the wild to their advantage. They use that big size to intimidate off a lot of animals, whether it's a coyote or um, bobcat coming up to try to steal their food, you know, so they can just puff up and look big and, um, you know, scare off most animals. So it's a really good strategy. Um, My understanding, Tiana, is that while there is a very intricate and careful process for reintroduction, just to also get the the land ready for them when the Yurok decided that it was time to reintroduce them to Yurok ancestral territory. Can you talk about the process of doing that as well? Definitely. Um, so I started out as a biologist. I could go into the years of, of kind of the feasibility analysis of what we took to determine that it was a good place to bring condors home to, but I won't because I'll go off on a tangent. Short story is we live in a relatively pristine area compared to a lot of the United States. And while threats are not um, are, are not non-existent, it's, it's still a pretty good place to live. But the two things that we really did to prepare the landscape was, well, I mean, really they're kind of the same thing. It was working with the human community to get ready for it. So on the one hand, that meant talking to a lot of our federal, state, nonprofit, industry, uh, land managers out there to say, hey, we're talking about reintroducing this endangered species. What are your thoughts about it? Do you have any concerns? And, and how do we address those concerns and move forward together in a good way, which was an incredibly valuable sort of partnership-based approach that just bore all kinds of fruit in making this happen. The other was reaching out to a specific demographic, which is very important to condor conservation throughout their range, which is the hunting and sporting community. And so uh, Joe briefly referenced it. Um, One of the primary threats to condors in the wild right now is threat from lead contamination, which has been found to uh, come from the use of lead ammunition, which most people we talk to were not originally aware of. I come from a hunting community. I'm a hunter myself, and I didn't know about it growing up. Uh, but the, the issue is that lead actually fragments heavily on impact and can actually uh, deposit in the gut piles that hunters will leave behind after harvesting an animal, which normally is incredibly good food for scavengers and is actually a very important role that hunters play in conservation by providing that food. But not when it's studded with lead, which, as we know, is a toxic chemical or a toxic element, excuse me. So a lot of our work right off the bat was starting our Hunters as Stewards project just to get the word out there about the impacts to condors, but also bald eagles and golden eagles, which people are, are very drawn to. Um, getting the information out there and asking our hunting community to join us again as partners in condor conservation now that they had this information in hand. And so we had a lot of success with that. And and this is something that um, we did not in any way start. This is something that is is very prevalent throughout the condor recovery program. 
Um, but one of the best ways for us to prepare for condors is, is getting that lead out of the system um, nice. in favor of non-lead alternatives, which are just as viable and don't have that um, unintended impact. Well, the listener tweets, can you briefly remind us why they almost went extinct? And it really is lead bullets, right, Joe? Yeah, that was one contributing factor. I think historically, you know, you had to look at a time too when there was a lot of extirpation going on um, on on multiple species when, you know, when people were coming from the East and settling the West and there was, uh, whether it was, you know, there was heavy heavy take on a lot of species and condors were also a victim of that. But yeah, in the last 50 years, it was predominantly lead poisoning from what we know. Um, and then obviously the last, uh, since we started reintroducing condors, it is the number one threat, you know, since uh, the early nineties when we began, um, we've been collecting data along the way. And uh, yeah, the research is overwhelmingly, um, you know, shows, and we just know it. My, I know from personal experience, picking up many a, a dead condor, um, life's cut way too short. Um, you know, that have fallen to lead poisoning, and uh, you know, actually have the lead fragments or actually intact lead bullets still in their GI tracts when we recover them. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's one of these unintended consequences. And again, the the solution is working with hunters and ranchers to um, to switch to the non lead. And our group, uh, Ventana Wildlife Society, we've been. Um, offering free non-lead ammo uh, since 2012 uh, to hunters and ranchers to help them make the switch. And um, yeah, and just, you know, educating. And like Tiana said, you know, I think a lot of it is that it's just a lot of folks didn't realize it was an issue. And, uh, and again, you know, the, you know, hunting within the regulations and it provides food on the landscape for condors, just as, you know, livestock does and other, other forms of, of food. Let me go to caller Sean next. Hi, Sean. Hi, uh, um, I was listening to the radio this morning and you guys were talking about the condors. Uh, my stepdad, Dr. John Quick, he uh, worked in Morgan Hill and he was one of the ones that took care of them when they brought them in from the Pinnacles um, back in, I'd say, what, 2003 to 2011 before he passed away. And uh, it was the coolest thing to walk inside there when they were x-raying them. And then like the giant eyeball was looking at me like, oh, it's you who's causing this. I was like, I don't know, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you felt like it was, were, it was. Sorry, yeah, go ahead, Chuck. Big, big, huge birds, and it was just so cool to see my stepdad take care of these just gigantic creatures that needed that he was helping save. It was great. Wow, that must have been quite, quite an experience. Um, let me go next to Drew in Fairfield. Hi, Drew. And while we try to connect with Drew, let me go to Carla in Oakland. Hi, Carla. Yes, this is so thrilling for me to hear. Um, I first heard about the condors when I was uh, in school in 1965. I was taking biology class, uh, and and the the, uh, professor introduced himself as the leading number one fire ecologist in the country. At that time, nobody had ever heard of ecology, much much less fire ecology. And he talked about, um, at that time, what they believed was one of the biggest factors in the extinction was... um, um, uh, 
the fire problem is that, huh. that there have been no controlled burns in the national forest. And he said, and I remember he said, Smokey the Bear is one of the biggest frauds ever perpetrated on the American public. You have to have controlled burns. And the reason is when these birds eat, they eat 80 pounds of deer meat or whatever, and they need runways to take off. And with the, the underbrush, they can't do it. So I don't know how accurate that is. Obviously, the, the lead poisoning is the, the more uh, relevant issue um, over time and clearly today. But I am so thrilled to see um, the captive breeding program being successful and the reintroduction program because one of the things he said in 1965 was that there were 37 left in the wild. They were going extinct. And at that time, they did not know if they could recover this species at all. Because yeah. because they they believe that at that time there there's a certain minimum number of in a herd or a flock that has to be done for 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 sustenance of the species, and he was very worried that they would not recover, um, and uh, no doubt he is not alive today. But he would be so hmm. happy to hear about this. Thank you so much for this program. It's, well, it's, it's very inspiring to what we can do to turn things around in the environment. Well, Carla, thank you for telling us about him and. Tiana, fire is a concern, right? It is something that can take a condor's life. It is, absolutely. And actually, the Central California flock, which is co-managed by Ventana Wildlife Society and Pinnacles National Park, uh, has suffered pretty badly um, over the past few years because of it. And I actually really appreciate, though, this previous commenter, because getting fire back on the landscape is a huge priority for the tribe, Um, because of its traditional role in keeping these sort of fires down and further by kind of almost eco-engineering the the landscape which is something that traditional peoples did in order to support a huge variety of wildlife so I, i know we're not the only ones who are doing it but one of the ways that we are working towards improving the ecosystem for condors in our area is by reestablishing our traditional prairies, um, which have been reduced to just 1% of what they used to be because of uh, fire suppression and because we were no longer allowed to do our traditional burns um, and expanding those prairies to be able to expand their access to foraging and food resources and things like that that rely on prairies. But right now, the ever-increasing catastrophic fire in California caused by, by drought and climate change Um, have had very real impacts on that Central California flock as well as Southern California flocks in in loss of both adult and juvenile birds, I believe. Well, Tanya writes, almost 20 years ago, our family went to the Oakland Zoo and they had a wonderful exhibit about condors, including wings that children could try on to show a condor's amazing wingspan. Wow. Wow. Very impressive birds. Phyllis writes, in the early 2000s, I was driving south on Highway 1 in Big Sur when three condors in formation were flying north. I had a sunroof in my Honda Civic, and the majestic birds flew directly over my car. I was amazed. Just down the road, I pulled over to a rest area for an hour, watched 13 condors on our roof, drying their wings from the recent rain. At that time, there were only 39 condors. I felt privileged. We'll be talking more about condors after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Sure. So in addition to where um, the two locations you've been talking about in Central California and Northern California, we also have a reintroduction program in Southern California down there based out of Hopper uh, Mountain National Wildlife Refuge. And over in Arizona as well, we have we are releasing birds in conjunction with the Vermilion Cliffs and National Monument and Grand Canyon National Park over there in Arizona. And those birds actually travel up into Utah as well. Um, And then we have our last release site is down um, in coordination with the Mexican government in Baja, California. Wow. Well, Carrie writes, we're seeing many more condors in San Benito County lately. I'm attaching a picture. A couple of weeks ago, this condor was soaring over the San Benito County Historical Park south of Hollister. We see many other birds here at the historical village as well. Thanks for doing that, Carrie. We'll see if we can get that up on social. But in the meantime, when we think about what they look like, I'm struck by the fact that there is this term for species that are are more popular called the charismatic megafauna, meaning that the way they look really does matter in terms of getting people and then therefore members of Congress actually interested in supporting them. Can you talk about where the condor fares on that relationship? Because looks do matter. Well, I would definitely include condor as one of the charismatic megafauna. You know, as Joe was talking about their, the way they change colors and, and they are big. Um, they might not be cute and cuddly, but they definitely draw attention. And so, um, but you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is looking to recover numerous species across the, um, the U.S. And some are big and some are small and some are plants. And so um, we do look to try to address all those and depending on opportunities and partnerships, you know, that often kind of drives how we how we move our funds and how we work with these partners to um, implement recovery. Well, I think this next call, I would probably agree with you that they're charismatic megafauna. Joshua in Sebastopol. Hi, Joshua. <laughs> Hi, how's it going? Well, go right ahead. All right. Um, so uh, this is Joshua, the photographer. Joe, uh, it's great to great to see you on here. Oh. Um, but actually, you have a question for Tiana, um, I know that there are four more that are going to, you know, get released soon. 
I was wondering if there are um, any plans to release more than that uh, after the, the next ones get released. Thanks, Joshua. Tiana? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're 100% correct. We actually have four more birds, another three males and one female currently staged within our release and management facility that we have out there. Um, and they are hopefully going to be released starting within the next couple of weeks. And, and then you kind of do it a staged release, a couple, then another, then another. So over the course of the next month or two. But we hope to be able to release more birds every year, um, four to six birds for the next 20 years. And then, of course, we hope as well to be in a few years seeing them start wild breeding as well to grow our population in that way. And we're not necessarily going to stop in any way after 20 years, but we are going to take a pause at that point and see how are, how is everybody doing and, and what's our approach afterwards? Do we need to keep on adding birds to the population or, or have they become self-sustaining in some way? It really is a lifelong commitment, isn't it, Tiana? And and so how how do you track and, and make sure the birds are safe and monitor their activity? Yeah, so every bird is incredibly precious, uh, not only to us individually as managers, but to the population as a whole, particularly because they were such low numbers and are still definitely uh, very endangered. So every bird actually is equipped with a, a patagial tag, a wing tag that you can visually identify them by. You'll hear me reference my birds as A0 or A3. That's the, the wing tag that you can see. Um, but they're also assigned a stud book number. So every single bird that's born anywhere is tracked from start to finish. Where they were born, who their parents were, did they have any offspring, were they ever sick? lead contaminated, anything like that. The birds themselves are tracked on a daily basis with both a GPS tag, which gives us a sense of how they're utilizing the landscape overall, and a radio tag that uh, crews will actually go out into the wild and get eyes on birds to make sure that they're healthy and well. So it's definitely a very involved sort of process. Uh, we try and catch them up at least twice a year to do physical checks test their blood, uh, check on their transmitters and things like that, all to make sure that each individual has the best opportunity for thriving that we can give them. And this mm -hmm. is just the beginning. I mean, this is the work that we do. There's a whole host of folks out there who do condor treatment as well. There's the breeding facilities where a lot of the, pretty much all of the wild birds come from um, if they're to be released into the wild and they're not wild born. Yeah. Um, researchers, people doing outreach. There's just an incredible amount of work that goes into, into making condors um, recovery a reality. Well, the listener asks, as a young girl, I remember hearing that DDT was a culprit and caused thin eggshells. Is that correct? Joe? Um, yeah, we actually um, have been researching that topic uh, beginning when the condors started nesting in Big Sur. Uh, condors feed on the coast on marine mammals, which can be a um, conduit for getting, um, you know, the the source of DDE. So we've been researching it. We did find some eggshell thinning, but um, our data shows that the eggshell thinning is not at a level that's going to harm reproduction. Um, but we are closely monitoring it. Um, fortunately, condors mix up their diet. They're not just relying on marine mammals. They they go inland and feed on terrestrial mammals. So there's a nice mix happening in a yeah, the outlook is good. So, but we're keeping a close eye on it. Well, how often do they have 
hatchlings, I guess. <laughs> I'm not a bird person, so I don't know exactly what to call them. But um, how many at a time do they mate for life? Like, what is that process and how it, long does it take? Yeah, it's very slow. Um, they mm -hmm. lay one egg every other year. And wow. so they spend the off year with that chick showing it the ropes out in the wild, introducing it to other birds, showing it where to feed, teaching it how to fly, teaching, you know, showing them the locations that have been successful for the parents, you know, so uh, passing on a lot of, a lot of lessons. And uh, that's really unique for birds. You don't, you know, you typically associate that with um, mammals, you know, with uh, grizzly bears or mountain lions, this, this long investment in their young. So yeah, that's slow, um, slow breeding. And, you know, they need a high, um, they need low mortality with their, their chicks. So this is uh, another aspect of condor. And yeah, and they have these, they mate for life. You know, they, they pair up as long as that mate survives, obviously they'll, they'll stay with that mate for life. So it's pretty, pretty, uh, you know, it's, it's very relatable. You know? Yeah, very much. I shouldn't say that I'm not a bird person. What I should say is I don't know that much about birds because they are just uh, awe-inspiring. And of course, we asked listeners to also share what they thought of condors. And they gave us words like magnificent, majestic, graceful, powerful, and spiritual. Ashley Blackford, given the description of all the partners that need to be involved, the monitoring that needs to p take place for how long these things need to take place, and the slow process with which they, understandably, the slow process which they have young, do you feel like the commitment from the federal government will be sustaining and there for this process? There, the, the outlook is good? <laughs> Well, I will definitely say that we, the Fish and Wildlife Service is committed to this program. And, and thankfully we have incredible partners that are committed as well. Um, not just the two folks you have, the Bentana Wildlife Society, but Pinnacles, National Monument, Yurok Tribe, and um, the Peregrine Fund as well, as well as all our captive breeding facilities. And so, yes, we, um, Although we uh, compete for funding every year across all those other species, this is definitely, I think, a priority of our region and our agency to continue to work towards recovery for. Um, we're seeing progress. We know how to solve this issue. And so um, continuing to work towards recovery and getting self-sustaining populations on the landscape, I think, is very achievable and something we want to continue to strive for. And I love this question from Logan. Logan writes, I know the reestablishing of condors has a long way to go, but how does it feel? How does it feel to see something that is so important to the Yurok people fly in the sky again? I got to go to you on that, Tiana. I mean, for myself as, as a Yurok woman and a Yurok biologist, I mean, this is definitely, I've literally been working toward this for my entire adult career. This was something that was given to me, to our program, by our elders. And I just, I'm so impressed and in love with them because, like I said, it had been 130 years since condors had actually lived on our landscape. But they, over, they and our ancestors had been able to keep that relationship alive through some really hard times. To uh, 2003 is actually when the decision was made and brought to kind of our tribal government, make this happen, bring condors home. And I remember when we first brought our first cohort in, and actually Joe and Bentana, as well as others, were there um, because our birds had been staged with Bentana until they could come up and join us. Uh, we brought out our elders, many of whom had been a part of that original task force who made that decision. And while I have always looked up to them with such gratitude and love, the love that was poured back on me 
for something that I feel blessed for having been able to contribute to was just an incredible feeling. Um, I also just have a four-year-old daughter now, and I myself did not grow up, you know, being taught everything about condors because it had been such a, a long time and because that information had been, been curated particularly by our ceremonial families, but not everyone had access to it. And that's why it's so important to have the full spectrum of the species that we co-evolved with, because if you don't have them there, how do you exist in relationship with them, you know? I mean, the point of the story is my four-year-old loves Praganish, her, her California condor. She's always asking for videos and pictures and stories about them. And so her world has been changed by the positive work that we and the rest of the California condor recovery program who laid the way for us has been able to bring condors back from the brink of extinction. Uh, on top of that, just seeing them fly, just take off right off the bat. It was such an incredible feeling and, and my heart definitely flew with them when they did. Tiana Williams Clausen, director of the Yurok Tribe Wildlife Department. Joe Burnett is also with a senior wildlife biologist and California Condor Recovery Program Manager at Ventana Wildlife Society. Ashley Blackford is with us, California Condor Coordinator and At-Risk Species Coordinator at the U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And let me go to caller Susan in San Francisco. Hi, Susan. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, love the show, especially today's. I just wanted to point out that um, you can see condors in the nest up close and personal on YouTube. You can see past uh, breeding seasons, and right now I'm looking at one in Tom's Canyon. Looks like to be number 60. It's a baby. hasn't. I don't think it's fledged yet because it still has some down on it. Um, and I'm watching it on YouTube. And the other one, all you have to do is go to YouTube and, and type in Condor Nest Camp. And then historically, they'll have past highlights, and I'm seeing one right now that shows condor number, looks like 90, in the nest with its radio transmitter, that's uh, the adult, and a little tiny down-covered baby. So I think when you see something up close, it makes you care about it more, and these nest camps provide you with that unprecedented ability to see these birds like you were two feet away from them. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that it's so fun that you're watching them while we talk about them right now. Oh, yeah. your, well, I looked it account. up so you would know. So. <laughs> Thanks, Susan. Appreciate that. Another listener tweets, what about the Occidental or Russian River area? Would that be a suitable habitat with the estuary and, and goat rock close by? Uh, what do you think, Tiana or, or Joe, the, the Occidental or Russian River, river area, Tiana? Well, I mean, we do know that condors ranged all the way up to British Columbia and that they are an extremely adaptable species. Um, so anywhere really where they can find access to foods and the resources they need, ostensibly they could thrive. So if you've got riverways, if you've got mountainways, coastal lines, anything with that really um, robust wind that they can take advantage of, you could have condors there. The one thing that you really do want to consider when you're talking about release areas are, um, I, I got to say, the human impacts from my impression. Um, are there a lot of humans? Because with more humans, you have more impacts. Um, are there enough resources, like food resources and things like that? Obviously, you don't want to be in an overly developed area, I would think, because condors thrive best if they're wild and free. 
Um, but anywhere that there's wind, I mean, they could be um, in the at least limitation of human impacts. And Joe, mm. I don't know if you've got anything to add to that. Yeah, and I think in the range, I'm trying to remember, Russian River is uh, not too far south of you, right, Tiana? I mean, that, that's within the range of the of the, the Berger releasing up there potentially. Let me see if I can squeeze in Clive in Woodacre. Hi, Clive, really quickly. Yeah, good morning. Um, thanks for the show. I was wondering how many birds have been lost to lead poisoning, the reintroduced birds, mm. and if there are any plans to ban or at least limit and control the use of lead in hunting. Mm, Clive, thanks. Joe? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean on Ashley for exact numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley? Yeah, so we know that we have lost about a little over 50% of the pop uh, of the known mortalities that we have have been attributed to lead poisoning. So it's a significant portion. Um, when we're addressing lead in the environment, really we're looking for um, collaborative, proactive, voluntary um, switching to lead to non-lead ammunition. California, there is a ban for hunting, um, but as we're looking for folks in Arizona and Utah, they're all taking the voluntary approach, looking to incentivize. And, and Joe mentioned earlier um, how Ventana Wildlife Society is um, contributing to that effort in California as well. So do you have an actual number just out of curiosity? Uh, no, it's OK. But if you have if you have an estimate or Joe our our producer is asking you to talk about traveler who was widowed two or three times as a result of lead poisoning, right? Yes, yeah, so a traveler is a 25 year old female, one of the first birds. Um, she was part of the first group of birds we I, I was part of releasing back in 1997, and you know she she really tells the story of survival and just resiliency. You know this she's been caught. This was her closest call with lead poisoning. She was on death's doorstep. And thanks to the efforts of um, Pinnacle's crew, noticing there was something off with her when she came to their release pen and they caught her. And then they were able to get her up to Oakland Zoo and Oakland Zoo, the veterinarians, and they have a treatment facility specifically for condors at the zoo. Um, the vets there were able to um, diagnose her and then find out that she was actually more severely um, mm. suffering from lead poisoning. And we were able to get her to LA Zoo and they were successfully able to do surgery and save her. Well, thanks for your efforts, Joe Burnett, Tiana Williams-Clausen, and Ashley Blackford. And thank you to the forum team who are Grace Wan, Caroline Smith, and Susie Britton. This is Forum. I'm Mina King. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! <laughs> 